The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the plot of Thunder and Rock and Roll and the public home of the much anticipated Duff McKagan joke of the week. It's Jericho. Duff McKagan here. Listen, my friend uh, started working at this Indian restaurant. They're really secretive about the flat bread recipe. They had him sign a, a document saying he would share it. He had me look at the document, and it was just a your standard uh, non-disclosure Thank you very much for that. That's actually really funny. I had to Google that. Um, non, it's a part of bread. It's a type of like, a, I guess, gluten-free bread or something. N-A-A-N is how it's spelled. A non-disclosure uh, disclosure agreement. All right. Thanks to Duff for never giving up on the jokes, no matter how good or bad they might be. Duff and GNR are still on the road, headed to New Zealand and Australia next month. Fozzie heading to Australia later this year as well. Uh, we are headed to Melbourne and Brisbane and Sydney and Adelaide, I believe, November 28th to December 4th. And we're headed to the UK once again. Manchester, it all kicks off November 4th. And we hit Birmingham, Nottingham, Dublin, Belfast, Swansea, Bournemouth, Bristol, Glasgow, and London. And we're doing our legendary VIP meet and greet. Still tickets left for all shows. Just go to FozzyRock.com. Uh, the VIP is the best in the business. So we play a mini set for you. We take pictures, sign autographs. Come hang with us. And if you saw the rehearsal footage, we are getting ready to go back on tour. The voice is feeling good. Uh, I got a couple weeks more of rehearsals and exercises, and we are ready to tear it up. We're also getting ready to tear up Fozzie on the Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea, the Four Leaf Clover. Still some cabins left, and you are not going to want to miss this lineup. Brad Williams is our director of laughs. Kate Quigley, Raj Sharma, and Jeff Dye doing comedy as well. Quiet Riot, Royal Bliss, Raven, Pris, the all-female Kiss cover band, the Dave Spivak Project. Quarantine's going to be there. Fozzie's going to be there. Guardians of the Jukebox. So many great, great bands playing. And, of course, Talk is Jericho, the major wrestling figure pod, the Paranormal 60 with Dave Schrader. We got Dan Lambert's title, Time Machine. He's going to bring some of his favorite championship belts from, uh, from wrestling history. AEW is going to be in the ship, and don't forget the inaugural crowning of the Jericho Cruz Oceanic Championship. Moose, Matt Cardona, Dante Martin, and the world-famous Cheeseburger facing off, and the winner of the tournament faces Flip Gordon to find out who's going to be the very first Jericho Cruz Oceanic Champion. 
We're going to our own private island for the first time ever at Great Stirrup K. Book your cabin now at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. More guests to be announced very, very soon. All right. There's a book that came out recently called Davy and Dynamite, The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs, all about the careers, ups and downs of Davy Boy Smith and the Dynamite Kid, a.k.a. Tom Billington. Author Stephen Bell is here today, uh, along with Bronwyn Billington, Dynamite Kid's daughter, his oldest daughter, Stampede Wrestling Historian Ross Hart, of course, brother of Brett and Owen. And we're going to talk all about the British Bulldogs, from how they first met and came to the States to work for Stampede and Ross's dad, Stu Hart, to when and how they got put together as a tag team, uh, to when they broke up, and of course, their untimely early deaths for both. We talk about their incredible chemistry, their monster run in Japan, their WWE signing, and why things didn't work out exactly as planned for them, their great matches and feuds, the incredible impact they had on the business and the actual style of wrestling. And we'll talk about their personal relationships. Bronwyn has stories about her childhood and estrangement from her father and what brought them back together not long before he passed. Ross and Steven share some of Dynamite's craziest ribs. It was notorious in that Calgary territory for those ribs. Who uh, was most often on the receiving end of them? A great conversation about one of my all-time favorite tag teams, the British Bulldogs, and it starts right here, right now, on Talk is Jericho. So here's a quick story. When I was uh, growing up in Winnipeg uh, as a huge wrestling fan, I used to hang out at the Polo Park Inn, which is where all the WWF wrestlers stayed. And I used to wear a really tight t-shirt with my friend Dave. And we were hoping that the British Bulldogs would see our muscles and take us under their wings to make us the Canadian Bulldogs and train us. And like we would do everything that the British Bulldogs did because I was a massive fan of the British Bulldogs. And to this day, still am. So that's why I was so excited to read the book that Steve did, uh, uh, The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. I've got Stephen Bell, the author of that book, historian, Stampede Wrestling historian Ross Hart, and then Bronwyn Billington, who is the daughter of the late, great Dynamite Kid. So uh, I'm excited about this. Like I said, I always wanted to be a British Bulldog, never quite made it, but this is going to be a uh, next closest thing. So Stephen... What made you decide to write this book? Kind of what were some of the details behind it? Probably goes back to childhood, really. I mean, here in the UK, early 90s, WWF was just an absolute phenomenon, especially for my generation, children of my generation at the time. It was aimed at us firmly. And David was a huge part of that, you know, this larger-than-life character wearing the Union Jack. He was all of our heroes. I had no idea at that point that, Dynamite Kid had even existed, and it was only after I had had a brief period where I wasn't into wrestling, and then at the, in the late nineties, early two thousands, the Attitude Era appeared, and um, I was at the optimum age to love it all over again, uh, which I did. And David was one of the few, I think, it's only sort of him and the Undertaker that were still around between those two periods. And by that point, I'd become a lot more socially and geographically aware. And I realized that I know from reading magazines and things like that, that Davey was only from sort of a 40 minute drive from where I was from, from a very similar mining town, just like me, just a very similar shared heritage. And then 
me and my brother got into wrestling in such a big way then that we started getting all the old VHS tapes, starting at WrestleMania 1 and working his way through. And so when we got to WrestleMania 2 and the British Bulldogs appeared, I was introduced to Tom. At that point, I, I didn't know much about him at all, but I started reading other books, other wrestling books and things. And it was Mick Foley's book, really, that started informing me just how what a star Dynamite was, that he was almost the leader of the team and that he was probably the best pound-for-pound pound wrestler in the world at that time when I had started, when I'd been introduced to him. So uh, that really fascinated me when I went on to learn that they were first cousins from the same mining town, just streets apart. I started to realise, wow, what an amazing story that these two lads from this same shared heritage as myself had gone on to be what they were, these larger-than-life characters, the best in the world at what they did. And I really wanted to know more about it and learn more about it. And then as things like Brett's book came out, the internet came out and we started getting things like shoot interviews and everything like that. And I just started Dynamite's own book. I just really started to become absolutely fascinated with the story. And then fast forward, maybe 15 years later, I'd written two successful sports books and the publisher were pushing me to, to write another. And I'd got this sort of burning desire to do it, to bring the Bulldogs uh, to the world and especially back to the UK using a, a UK publisher. You know, I think, I think that that's particularly where the story's been a little bit forgotten for exactly what it was and exactly what they achieved from their humble beginnings. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. And I want to talk to Ross about their humble beginnings. But before we do, Bronwyn, you um, were on Dark Side of the Ring talking about Dynamite. And now that with this book, and I think just people kind of remembering just, you know, the whole history of Dynamite Kid. How is that for you? Because obviously you're very young, memories of, of Tommy. And is it cool for you to see kind of the, the resurgence of this interest in Dynamite Kid? Is it, is it hard? How, how does it feel for you? I think the timing couldn't have been more perfect for myself. You know, my dad passed away in 2018. And then, you know, we went into this pandemic and things were crazy and weird. And um, I did Dark Side of the Ring. And so that really helped me process a lot and heal, especially for my sister, who was a part of that episode. It was really important for her. She had never met our father. And I was so proud of her for agreeing to do that episode. So it was extremely healing for us to do together. You know, it was it was hard. I took the necessary steps to deal with it, cope with it. And then next was I want to remember him in a positive light and just continue to do that. I don't want to focus on the dark anymore. So Stephen had come to me and asked if I wanted to be a part of the book. And the afterword that I wrote was, again, really healing for me. So it's been a great process for myself. Well, it was a different time back then, too, when you're talking about the, the late 70s and 80s, just how wrestlers were, how they acted, and things have, have really changed. But, Ross, talking about Davey and Dynamite, both of them started in, in, in Stampede in Calgary, working for your father, for Stu. Kind of tell us the, the, a little bit of the lineage of how they ended up coming to Calgary, because both of them came at different times, but with, we're both very critically acclaimed, but Dynamite was kind of the, the, the key to Stampede's resurgence when he first came in. Yeah, he definitely was, Chris. They were both taught by the same teacher, Ted Bentley, who also taught Steve Wright and um, Marty Jones, some pretty established uh, British stars. But uh, Bruce, my brother, had gone over on a tour. He's actually wrestling in the UK. I think it was in the fall of 1977. And he, he spotted Dynamite working on these shows. He was in a lighter weight division, but... He was just incredible. He was just having phenomenal matches. Uh, Bruce approached him about 
coming to Canada. And Bruce had to do that very secretly because uh, Max Crabtree, the promoter, had a lot invested in Dynamite. He obviously didn't want to lose him. You know, he was probably his biggest drawing card and the most explosive attraction that he had on the shows. But uh, I think for Dynamite, he, he knew it would be an opportunity to get some North American exposure and maybe, uh, you know, enable him to go to, to, to Germany and Japan and Mexico and open a lot of doors for him. So so Bruce was able to do that. He was able to uh, convince him to come over in the, the spring of uh, 1978. And, um, you know, Dynamite just revolutionized the territory. You know, his matches were incredible, the ones he had with, with uh, Brett and Bruce as well. And, um, you know, first worked as a baby face and then, uh, got recruited by J.R. Foley as a manager and turned heel. And, uh, you know, he was, he was just having fantastic matches and, uh, you know, revitalized the territories. My dad's promotion was really struggling at the time and he had almost gone out of business and dynamite revolutionized the standard of wrestling, but, but really increased the, the interest with, with fans. And uh, we were, we were selling out regularly every week. Davey Boy, who, who had also been trained by Ted Bentley, was a few years behind Dynamite, and, and obviously he he wanted to follow Dynamite's footsteps. So he, he came over about three years later in 1981, and because he had the same teacher, and he had also grown up in England, worked with a lot of the same guys that uh, Tom had, you know, he was able to follow Tom's footsteps. But what really enabled Davey to get over so well was his first match was against Dynamite. You know, and Dynamite had, had never seen him work. He had just seen him last when he'd been over a few years before. And um, it was a big test for Davey because he had to live up to Tom's standards. And Tom basically called the match. And uh, it was just incredible. They had incredible chemistry together. And uh, that, that's what helped launch Davey. And then they worked a lot against each other. And people didn't even know they were cousins. They didn't even know they were actually relatives. I mean, Dynamite was... Uh, <laughs> was calling Davey every name in the book and, you know, saying he was uh, an illegitimate uh, child and all, all, all these uh, horrible promos and interviews about uh, a Davey boy, you know, and uh, a few years later, you know, they, they became a tag team. I think that was after they had toured New Japan together, you know, and then uh, the rest was history. You know, they tag teamed in Stampede and did so well with New Japan and then switched over to All Japan and then uh, eventually got recruited by the WWE. There was a lot of bit of a rivalry there, wasn't there, Stephen? Because at first, Tommy uh, Dynamite didn't want Davey to come over and, and to, to stampede. Yeah, that's um, what I'm led to believe by everybody concerned. I don't think anybody really knew exactly why at the time. I think it was to- something that Tom just felt within himself that his star was shining so bright and it was Davey potentially going to come along and maybe take some of that limelight. You know, they have the same genetics. They've been trained by the same trainer, the same upbringing, the same background in British wrestling with joint promotions, both followed the same path as Big Daddy's tag team partner. And yeah, I think he just maybe felt that he'd forged this uniqueness about his style, his career, and just maybe potentially didn't want that to be chipped away at. But the moment that Davey got in the ring with him and there were some fears that, you know, Tom could could make him look foolish if he really wanted to at that time, you know, but he didn't. Instead, he did the opposite and made him look a million dollars, as they say. And that got his career in Canada off to a flying start. Just to corroborate that, and I hate to interrupt, but, you know, Steve, you're absolutely right. When uh, Bruce um, was, was approached by Ted Bentley about Davey coming over three years after Tom was already established, you know, uh, main event star for us. He, he made it very clear to Bruce, if he comes over here, I'm gone. 
I, I honestly don't think he believed Davey had, had learned how to wrestle. Maybe that he was just uh, going to use Tom's name and uh, write on his, his coattails. But he honestly didn't believe Davey had, had learned how to work and um, could match his level, you know, and, and, and that would be an embarrassment to Tom, you know, and, and I think he was really surprised when, when Davey came over and uh, Tom called the match and laid it out. It was very professional. You know, Tom could have uh, just eaten him alive or not sold for him, but he called the match and Davey had to be there and follow every step of the way. And he did when he lived up to Dynamite's uh, expectations, um, or I guess he maybe didn't. He exceeded them. He exceeded Dynamite's expectations. Uh, that was a big test for, for Davey to pass. And uh, Tom, gradually accepted him. Although Tom always uh, made things hard for Davey, he pulled a lot of ribs on him. He, he was sometimes stiff with him in the ring. Um, you know, he didn't make things easy for him, but uh, but he certainly did ex- exceed his expectations. But initially, Tom didn't think he could, and uh, that's that's why he was so opposed to him coming over here. But uh, they worked so well together and complemented each other so well. But initially, uh, they didn't get off to that start. It's interesting, too. You mentioned uh, Dynamite used to rib... Davy, and that was a Calgary stampede, uh, kind of a, a standard of, of of the ribs, and Dynamite was was one of the of the famous ribbers. Tell us some of the ribs that that you wrote about in your book, Stephen, of things that that Dynamite did to poor, unsuspecting up and coming wrestlers. Well, we've just been covering the sort of introduction that Davy had over there. You know, there was um, uh, I think the favorite Dynamite rib is the one on Jr. Foley when is. Is rooming with J.R. Foley when they're on the road together. <laughs> J.R. Foley loves a good drink. And Dynamite's noticed that when he goes to the toilet and he's, um, he's smoking his cigarettes while he's sat on the toilet, when Dynamite goes into the toilet after, there's usually a floating cigarette butt in there. So he has the idea to put some flammable liquid. <laughs> J.R. Foley actually pokes the cigarette butt in between, his, uh, in between his legs to put it out when he's finished with it. And sure enough, he does. So J.R. Foley comes dashing out of the toilet door, putting his private parts out. Bronwyn, did uh, did Dynamite ever pull any uh, tricks like that on, on on you guys when you were kids? I can't say that he did. I think he saved those for the road, luckily. <laughs> but he, uh, I, I remember pulling a little rib on him once, though. He was a very loud snorer, so... He fell asleep snoring on the couch and I was watching my cartoons and I went to get towels from the closet and I kept putting a towel on his head to cover up his snore so I could hear my cartoons. It wasn't working, so I kept going and then he woke up and he had like a mountain of uh, towels on his head when he woke up. (laughs) What do you remember of him as, as a father? He, I was his firstborn, daddy's little girl, so he really spoiled me and I just remember him being so kind and gentle towards me always did whatever he could to make me happy. I can remember, you know, just going to the grocery store with him and his two-seater Corvette. I'd be like, I want to go, Daddy. And he'd be like, okay. So we would just cruise off (laughs) in the Corvette. (laughs) You know, I asked for a pony for my birthday, and I was four years old, and, of course, he delivered. You got one. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) In no way, shape, or form are we able to take care of a pony. We didn't know what we were doing, but I think I had it for about 24 hours. And then we sold it to our neighbor. Do you want a beautiful lawn? 
Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Ross, let's talk a little bit about, about Dynamite some more, about how he basically revolutionized the style of pro wrestling because Stampede was such a great uh, melting pot of styles between the English guys and the Japanese guys, the Canadian guys, you had some European guys, but nobody really worked like Dynamite until he came over and, of course, found great chemistry with Brett and Owen and, and so, forth, so on and so forth, but he really did kind of change the way wrestling was, was performed. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. You know, Chris, we were blessed to have had uh, kind of a British invasion, I guess, in the late 60s. Billy Robinson had come over, Les Thornton, uh, Jeff Ports, you know, who was uh, Scott McGee's father, Black Angus, Kendo Nagasaki, the original Kendo Nagasaki. But these were all heavyweights, and uh, they certainly kind of introduced the European style, but uh, Dynamite brought a completely different dimension when he came over in 78. You know, just everything, the... uh, the nip-ups, the cartwheels, you know, just uh, his energy level, you know, the bumps he took. Uh, so, you know, he initially got over as a baby face, but uh, you know, we realized he he could have great matches with Brett and Bruce and Keith. And um, many years later, uh, Owen. Owen and Davey, of course, when he first came over and Davey was a lot lighter, but uh, Tom just was just phenomenal. You know, his uh, explosiveness in, in the ring and, uh, you know, fans loved it even when he was a heel they loved watching him in action it definitely set a different pace for all the wrestlers everybody had to try and keep up with dynamite and tom was a good leader in the dressing room too if if he saw somebody wasn't uh pulling their share they were they were lazy you know he he would go after them he would confront them in the dressing room or he would uh go after them in a match you know and, and make them look bad so uh was a strong advocate for for hard work and everybody doing their share and uh everybody had to work that much harder you know just just to compete with him in the ring and be on the same cards as him Stephen, let's talk about the British Bulldogs in Japan because when they became a tag team they really uh took over in a lot of ways and captured the 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 imagination of the Japanese fans their style was very very popular there they were very popular as a team to the point where they were even pulled a big coup by jumping companies from from Anoki to Baba and vice versa so kind of talk about the impact they had in Japan how big they really were over there it were huge and I think obviously Dynamite had already uh, set the stall out there in Japan before David went over Dynamite were already hugely over in Japan after a series of matches with Tiger Mask and others and so when the Japanese audience was introduced to Davey they saw the similarities that was going on the the, the wiggle like that also proudly that they are they feel almost part of that Wigan snake pit legacy and so they saw this as sort of the second coming of the Billy Robinson Carl Gott sort of generation and so they really even though they were gaijin and initially dressed to, so performing as in that heel gaijin role uh, the Japanese fans really warmed to them immediately just because of the hard work, performance levels. And so they were in the position with Dynamite and Davey and the and the promoters as well, where the the enviable position that no promoter has now, where pre-internet and, and everything like that in 
in territories and particularly in foreign countries, they could get away with being arch enemies in Stampede, but tag team partners in, in Japan. And because Japan has this, uh, both in New Japan and Old Japan, they have these tours that are just dedicated to tag team tournament. Both the Noki and Baba in the separate times when they were promoting Dynamite and Davy saw that as a real lucrative draw, them as a tag team. And they they did their first tag team matches and the first tag team tours in Japan. And that is where the rest of the world stood up and took notice. There was this new revolutionary style of tag team wrestling almost. The high fly and the high impact. They managed to translate the singles style that they had into new and innovative tag team maneuvers, double teams, and almost like a telepathic nature from knowing each other, having shared heritage, that shared training, even though it was separate, they had the same training, both at home and then in the dungeon in Calgary. And I think that really, really came into fruition once they were unleashed as a tag team, as you say, initially in Japan. And that is what made the rest of the world uh, stand on notice, eventually made Vince McMahon make them an offer they couldn't refuse. You've been posting some cool stuff on your Twitter, uh, Bronwyn, of, of some great Dynamite highlights. There's a great one of uh, Dynamite and Davey, I think it's versus Gordy and maybe Hanson. And Dynamite and Terry Gordy, obviously there's a big size difference, but it's such a great spot of, of, of them working together. Do you watch a lot of your dad's matches? I do. I try to. I know there's so much out there and now we're able to get a lot more of the Stampede Wrestling and New Japan stuff. So, yeah, I watch as much as I can. Ross, one of the things with both Davey and Dynamite, and we, you mentioned uh, Vince McMahon, Stephen, when they went to the WWF at the time, I mean, both the guys were smaller in stature naturally, but when they got to WWF, they both were just massive. They looked great. It was kind of the culture at the time to get that big, but was that something that started in Stampede, kind of you know, get, getting onto the, the, the various supplements that you needed to, to get to the WWE? Was that something they consciously were doing, or was it was just part of the culture at the time? I think it was part of the culture. Definitely it was Stampede, but all the territories. Um, guys had to look well-defined, had to look muscular. I mean, this was uh, a period when uh, Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody were the biggest stars, uh, you know, arguably in the U.S. and definitely in Japan. And uh, Dynamite Davey um, made heavyweights, I guess. So, you know, they, they definitely did, but they weren't the only ones, you know. Sure. Everyone had to, uh, in order to look bigger. And to their credit, I mean, they worked out regularly in the gym. You know, Dynamite fanatically was... Uh, working out as much as he was training for his matches, you know, and that was just incredible, especially with all the injuries he had had, you know, he had had uh, blown knees and separated shoulders and broken ribs just from uh, the impactful style he had. And Davey had some injuries too, but um, I think it was definitely a characteristic of Stampede, but a lot of the territories, you know, especially uh, smaller guys had to take steroids and uh, other supplements to get bigger. And, you know, and unfortunately that led to, uh, painkillers and uh medications to help you sleep and uh to help you get energy you know and uh steroids kind of introduced them to all these different prescription drugs they took just to uh survive the matches the injuries and lack of sleep and the difficult lifestyles on the road with all the traveling and uh different time spans and uh, it certainly took its toll on dynamite davy over a period of years you know even though uh it gave them um great looks and appearances yeah, it was it was part of the culture though, and also too, what a lot of people might not understand is that I think at that point in time, those guys were on the road. 
literally, you know, 300 days a year. And this is not some kind of pro wrestling exaggeration. It was going from, you know, almost Star of David routing, going from Detroit down to L.A., over to Calgary, over to Seattle, back down to Florida, and ever in between. So it was a very, very difficult time to be in the business just as a human being and physically the toll that you were taking. But And I remember, too, like even Dynamite and Davey, like you would go to a WWF house show and most of the guys would be doing, you know, house show stuff. But if it was Davey and Dynamite, if they came, if it was against Valentine and Beefcake or, or Demolition or whoever they were feuding with, Arn and Tully, those matches were always a step above. And that's why, like, me and my friend loved the British Bulldogs because it was the first kind of indication of high-flying matches, if you want to call it that, or, or hard-hitting matches where they never looked like they took a night off. You know, it was always giving their all whether it was on TV in front of millions or in, you know, the Winnipeg arena in front of 6,000 people. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I think they had an obligation to really put out for the fans, you know, they didn't want to let fans down or disappoint them. And they always performed, I think in front of big, pretty big crowds. I mean, uh, WWF was drawing fantastic, you know, and they, and they were obviously uh, performing in front of big, big crowds in Japan, even though it was a more uh, serious audience there, but still uh, both audiences loved them. So they, worked their hardest every night plus they wanted to perform in front of their peers you know they, they knew they were competing against a lot of other tag teams you know there, there were so many great tag teams in wwf at that time i mean there's the heart foundation there's the killer bees the fabulous rude shows the islanders and tom and davy had to uh work hard just to keep their 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 spot on the card you know and, and even even after they won the tag team belts uh they never rested on their laurels you know they uh they knew other wrestlers were watching them so uh and they would do different things every night you know they they never uh relied on the same old cliche or stereotype moves they would come up with uh very innovative things every night you know just just to please the fans uh obviously the promoters and uh to impress the other wrestlers that they had to compete against I remember once again at the uh, previously mentioned Polo Park Inn in Winnipeg, and it was after the show. And I used to hang out once again <laughs> at the bar and see who I could see. And I remember I saw Dynamite one night, and he was there, and he had like a dress shirt on, kind of open like mine. His pecs were just sticking out, and he was just kind of sitting there. And I was like, I'm going to go talk to the Dynamite kid. And you know how it is when you can see the, the mark coming from a mile away. <laughs> And Dynamite spotted me, and I could just see in his face, he was like, don't fucking even think about it. And I was like, ooh, I'll just go walk over here. I'll talk to Coco Beware instead. But <laughs> just such an intense type of guy. And I was just like, oh, that was just so funny to think back about that. But, Stephen, was it hard for Vince to convince Davey and Dynamite to come to WWF because they were doing so well in Japan? I think so, because... Tom was so much sort of the leader of that team at the time. Davey showed immense loyalty to him, but he trusted Tom to guide him through his career, I think. And they absolutely loved the Japanese tours. And so they knew that at the time when Vince was creating this, trying to create this monopoly that he was doing and this takeover that he was doing, they were pretty much exclusive to the WWF. They had to be, other than Tom didn't want to give up his Japan tours. And he also had offers coming from the AWA at the time. Vern Gagne was still around. And they were very sought after. And I think that the thought of the, the glitz and the glamour of the WWF was the attraction to Tom that it was to a lot of others. He was there for the wrestling and to make money. And if he thought he could make the same level of money by doing his three or four Japan tours a year and then making up his time with what were left of the territories, I think he would have definitely done that. 
and it, it did take Vince ultimately an offer that they couldn't refuse, which included, he held out and got his wish. Uh, certainly for that first year or 18 months, he got to keep the Japan Tours contract, even when they were first uh, WWF Tag Team Champions. They were still going to go and do their Japan Tours. It was only when the money with the WWF really shot through the roof, they couldn't afford to even to do the Japan tours anymore. And that's when Vince finally got his men exclusively. It's interesting too, like when you watch some of that stuff from the, from the eighties, especially like the Slammy awards and those type of things. And I used to love that. I still do. I think one of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history is Vince McMahon singing stand back at the Slammys in 1987 with the killer bees playing horns yeah. and Hulk Hogan on bass. I love, love, love when they do uh, the song from the pile driver album called um, if you only knew. And it's kind of a, it's like a, like a We Are the World thing, and Davy Boy and Dynamite have a line that they have to sing. Do, have you seen that, Bronwyn? Like how, oh, like, it's so ridiculous. How angry do you think Dynamite was in having to do that? Well, you can see he's holding back laughter in the video. and Yeah. So he had to have had fun, but I know he didn't really like that stuff. That style. Because then again, one, you know, then, then the action figures are coming, and the, and the toys, and then here's Matilda the Bulldog, and it's everything they can do to make it more of this friendlier sports entertainment but you're saying he was a pro Bronwyn and he just went with it even though he might not have liked it a thousand percent yeah I, I know I definitely know he didn't like it and that's why you know he preferred Japan he just wanted to concentrate on the wrestling but um I think him and Davey had fun with it so do you want a beautiful lawn enter true green the easiest way to get a great lawn just water and mow and they'll do the rest weed control fertilization aeration and more True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Ross, how was it for, for you? And obviously when, when Davey starts coming around the house and he ends up dating your sister Diana, ends up marrying her, it's kind of a no-no, you know, to date the promoter's daughter. Was Stu cool with it? Was Helen cool with that? Did they ever have any issues with, with Davey coming around? Initially they did. Davey was kind of uh, tiptoeing around the house. You know, he would uh, maybe borrow Brett's car because I think he was staying with Brett and he didn't have wheels of his own and he would come up to uh, the house and... Uh, Diana would very discreetly kind of go out, you know, and they, and they weren't doing anything wrong other than, you know, going out to a few movies maybe and uh, maybe out to a few dinners. But, you know, when the relationship got more serious, yeah, it was uh, a little more contentious. You know, my uh, my dad really was, was upset with Diana when she <laughs> went on a trip to visit Davy's family. And this was about two years after they had been dating. But, you know, Diana was the, uh, the youngest daughter in the family and, uh, she just kind of sprung it on them a few days before she left and said, I'm, I'm going to go to uh, Goldborn, England and, uh, you know, sp spend uh, Christmas, I think, with, with uh, Davy's family. And they were very much opposed to that. They just didn't like the idea of their daughter being so far away from home. And they really didn't know what Davy's uh, intentions were. But, you know, they truly did love each other. And, you know, they eventually couldn't, you know, stop her from dating him. You know, if it was her wish to date him. And uh, uh, she did. But, you know, they took things on uh, stages you know they never really uh lived together until uh he proposed to her finally and uh married her and you know they they had a beautiful wedding for them you know and my parents uh hosted that it was really nice so many people from uh the city and wrestling circles came so they eventually um 
embrace their relationship. But uh, initially, they, they had some reservations uh, just because uh, it went at such a fast pace at, at, at some stage, and they were being protective of their youngest daughter. But uh, after that, Davey was pretty much accepted by my parents and everybody in our family. Well, it's interesting, too, because, Bronwyn, uh, the Hart family is so uh, huge, both extended family as well. And, Bronwyn, your mom was married to Brett. So so your uncle is Brett. <laughs> so it's like there's there's a real kind of cohesiveness there as well for, for your mom and your aunt and the Hart family as well. Yeah. Whenever people ask me how, how I'm related to the Hearts, I'm like, well, I'm actually kind of related in two ways. Yeah. Right. And my mom's sister married Brett Hart. And then my dad's cousin married Diana Hart. <laughs> right. So it just continues on and on. What was the peak of the British Bulldogs in the WWF, Stephen? Because because th- th- it seems like the run was was very short, only two years maybe or so. Like I remember the Bulldogs coming in in about 86. And I think by about 88 or 89, they were gone at that point already. Yeah. So they came in 85 couple of matches in 84, but uh, Tom, that's when Tom decided initially that he didn't like the WWF, and then it was 85 when Vince lured them in for good. Uh, 86 and 87, you'd have to say, were their peak. That's when they were the champions, but Tom got his severe back injury. Uh, Obviously, his back injuries were just mounting up and mounting up. He was just wrestling through them, but it was in an innocuous moment with Don Morocco, uh, when his back gave out altogether, that was the beginning of the end for them, unfortunately. So you could argue the run was absolute best. Their run was sort of 18 months. They came back from that and they did carry on. They never won the titles again, but he did a brilliant job, or they did a brilliant job of making sure that they handed the belts over to, which was obviously the Art Foundation. And so when they came back in 87, they weren't quite the same. Tom's time in the ring was shorter. Davey was picking up the heavy load for the team at that point. Then there was a bit of a role reversal. Certainly in ring, Davey became a bit of the leader. And then in sort of 88, then we got the Jacques Rougeau incident, which then directly sort of led to them leaving the WWF for good for Tom's part. And Davey left the WWF as well. Ross, let's talk about Tommy's injuries because, like you mentioned, just as he was starting to get to the point where he was making some pretty big money on a national stage, he gets hurt. And that's just from the wear and tear of his style. We mentioned before how he changed the style of pro wrestling. It was so hard-hitting and intense. But, once again, that, that takes its toll on your body. So, were you noticing that in the in the Stampede days or something that happened more in the WWF days where Dynamo was starting to get hurt more and more? He had some injuries with Stampede, mostly uh, his knees. He never had total knee replacements, I don't think, until many years later, but definitely torn cartilages. And he would be out sometimes for three, four weeks. Some injuries uh, were in Japan, some were with Stampede. But I know he really hurt his back in a match uh, with New Japan in 1984. He, I think he was suplexing the Cobra over the top ropes outside the ring. And as they both went over, Tom hit his back right against the, uh, the edge of the apron. And that's where the start of his back problem started. And he just carried through that for a couple of years. But he was he was in so much pain, especially uh, walking through airports and up and down stairs. Never took a day off for it. You know, he just kept going, kept going and kept going with it. And, uh, you know, and then in this match with Don Morocco and Bob Orton, his back just went, you know, it was uh, paralysis basically in the spine. And that was it, you know, and uh, he just collapsed in the ring and had to undergo surgery right away. And, you know, Steve said that it cut their tag team range short. You know, they had had the belts probably for 
six months and would have had them maybe for another four or five months. And uh, they had to uh, either forfeit the belts or, or drop them to somebody else. And Tom very magnanimously said, we'll put the Hart Foundation over, you know, and he, he was very uh, specific. He said, I'm not, I'm not putting anybody else over. These are the only guys I'll be willing to drop the belts to. And Vince really didn't want to have, uh, have them vacate the title. You know, he, he wanted to transition to another team to, to win the belt. So Tom, uh, I don't even think it was um, a month after he had had his surgery in Calgary when they went to Florida at TV tapings and basically uh, had to be carried into the ring by Davey and, uh, you know, was, was uh, ambushed right at the beginning of the match and then Dynamite and then Brett and uh, Jim took the fall on Davey. It was like a very short in and out match, you know, just to, to deal, to accommodate Tom's injuries. And that's what they had to do, you know, but, um, you know, it was a passing of the torch and, uh, as much as he had to hate it to give up the belts and lose their spot, you know, he, he really wanted Brett and Jim to have that opportunity and they'd had some classic matches together. I, I arguably, I don't think anybody had better matches than those two teams, you know, uh, at the height of tag team wrestling, the WWF, but, that took a lot out of Dynamite. You know, he, he had to take more time off and it slowed him down considerably. And then, then a lot of other injuries uh, started to take its toll on him. And it was amazing how he withstood a lot of them and kept coming back and wrestling and wrestling. And even in Japan, you just noticed how he gave 100% in the ring, even though um, he'd lost a lot of weight. He'd lost a lot of his size. He couldn't train to the extent that he did anymore. And, and other injuries were starting to catch up with him, you know, especially with his knees and uh, his back was still giving him a lot of problems. You know, he had, he had so much pride and he went above and beyond every match. You know, he, 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 uh, he didn't want to be considered a husband or somebody who was just uh, faking an injury. So uh, he worked hard every night, he, he, even with all the injuries he had. Do you recall, I know you're very young at the time, Bronwyn, but did your dad ever ever let that known that he was hurt, or did he try and kind of hide that from you guys? Well, whenever he'd be home from the road, he would just be napping on the couch. So my mom's like, Daddy's resting his body. So I knew that he was in pain from his matches. Um, he wouldn't really let me know, but I saw it with my own eyes. He'd just be resting all day. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Ross, I remember even when Davey and Dynamite were working in WWF that once in a while there'd be a big show in Calgary and you would see, you know, Jim and Brett versus the British Bulldogs. So Vince would allow them to go do shows for Stu, even though they're under contract exclusively to WWF? He did to an extent for a couple of years. You know, my dad had closed the Stampede promotion down, basically sold the uh, the territory and TV rights to WWF. And then uh, when they tried running here in 84 and 85, their matches didn't get over at all. The shows weren't well received by the Calgary fans. You know, they didn't like the squash job format of uh, the TV shows, you know, on Maple Leaf Wrestling. And uh, they didn't draw very well at all. And so my dad decided to start the promotion back up. You know, he, he asked kind of as a favor if Dynamite Davey could work on some shows when they were home even Brett and Jim, and 
they did, you know, for a year or two. And then, you know, and they would always uh, draw great crowds when they, when they came back to Stampede fans, uh, you know, knew they had become major stars on, on uh, WWF and having excellent matches, the Hart foundation, that was such a big rivalry. So, so when they wrestled here, although I don't, I don't think they wrestled against each other here in Calgary as a team, not on a stampede show, but Brett had some, uh, some really good singles matches with, um, with Davy boy. Mm. They sold out the pavilion and the stampede corral, which was, a, you know, 7,000 seat arena, but dynamite Davy worked, I think with honky tonk main and Ron star and had some really good matches there. And I think Brett and Jim worked with, uh, Honky Tonk and Ron Stars. So it was nice that some of the uh, Stampede alumni stars could uh, work on the Stampede shows, but by about 87, uh, Vince said no more. He wanted them to be uh, solely WWE stars with, with no exposure uh, on any other shows, you know. So for that time period, great. You know, we, we still got a chance to work on some of their few weekends off and perform on uh, Stampede shows. Steve, what was kind of the, the reason or the final straw with Vince and the British Bulldogs? Why did they end up leaving WWF? I know you mentioned the, the Jacques Rougeau incident. We don't need to get into that, but obviously the famous fight between Jacques and, and Dynamite. But what led to them actually parting ways? I think Tom's mindset, uh, I think he'd kind of already left. By the time he came back, uh, they, they went on a European tour immediately after the Jacques Rougeau incident that were already booked. That's where they were going. Tom came home. I think he was usually deflated after that. It felt like his wings had been clipped. His normal mentality would have been undoubtedly that he, he needed to get retribution for that. But Vince pulled the political angle and completely embargoed any further uh, retribution. And they were slowly tumbling down the tag team ranks. They, they almost built the tag team ranks up between them and the Art Foundation. But by then, you had got the Killer Bees, the Rojos themselves, the Rockers were on the scene. The tag team division was absolutely thriving. And because of Tom's ongoing injuries and his contribution to the tag team slowly dwindling, they were dwindling too, and they were slowly going down that pecking order. And that is not Tom's style. He's not going to be somebody who's satisfied with just contributing a few minutes to a match, letting David do the high spots. Right. He, when he knows that Japan, all Japan would have him back straight away. I think he was torn between keeping the money uh, that the WWF offered and his own personal professional pride. And it was a, a sort of innocuous incident involving a mix-up with a airplane ticket that didn't arrive for them and they were forced to hire a car or one of the journeys between shows when they assumed that they were going to be on a plane. Tom took that as a final bit of disrespect from the company and walked out there and then and David followed him out of loyalty and they went off back to Japan and by then Stampede had started back up again. So they had some own shows that they could do as well and fill in their, fill in their time that way. So they sort of went back in time to being mixing it up between Calgary and Japan. And that suited Tom from a personal point of view. We could be at home and also do the lucrative tour in Japan that he loves so much. But then, obviously, two or three years of that, they weren't earning the same money that they were with the WWF. Davey, who didn't have the same level of animosity towards Vince and the WWF that Tom did, and Davey had a little bit more of the... He liked a little bit more of the glitz and the glamour. He liked being a babyface. Tom never liked being a babyface in the WWF. He preferred being a gaijin or a heel in Stampede. And so 
it reached a point in 1990 where David really wanted to go back to the WWF. Tom absolutely would not. And it happened to be at a collaborative show between All Japan and the WWF. Vince was there. He went into the locker room, assuming that Tom was still the locker room leader, which he was certainly out of the ring. Went and introduced himself to Tom, told him that he was impressed with them that night. Looked like they were somewhere near back to the best. And his language intimated that the door was open to a return. And Tom told him in no uncertain terms that that would never happen. I think Davey was very disappointed with that. Davey at that point wanted to go back. He felt like he were at the sort of peak of his powers at that point. And he then sort of backed himself to go and have a skills run. That's what led not only to the end of the British Bulldogs, but also to Davey going back to the WWF. And Tom unfortunately saw that as a betrayal and they never spoke again. Before we get up to that, I want to talk, Ross, about, I remember right before I got in the business in about 89, um, I started in 1990, that there was a big program of uh, the dog fight of the century and it was bulldog versus bulldog. Almost kind of, um, I don't know, you can explain it better than I can surmise that it was more of kind of a last ditch effort at trying to pop the territory of having Davey versus Dynamite. Is that kind of what happened? Because I think Dynamite had taken over the book at Stampede at that point in time. Yeah, you had. And, um, you know, it was uh, a difficult period. Um, you know, when they initially came back, you know, we had huge crowds, you know, and uh, Dynamite and Davey uh, returned to Stampede. We put the tag team belts on them. They they worked with the Cuban Commandos and uh, Makin Singh and Gary Albright. They're billed as Makin and Vulcan Singh, I think, and uh, and they got over great. But uh, then then they they had obligations to tour all Japan still. So as soon as we kind of got them uh, over and in a program, they would have to uh, tour all Japan and kind of interrupted the flow there, I guess. And, uh, and you know, and I think a lot of the injuries are catching up with Tom as well. So the novelty of them coming back and working as a team kind of wore off after a few months and maybe we just didn't have the level of guys they needed to work against to draw i think my brother bruce was booking at the time and i think tom wanted to work heel and uh, so let's just try something different and uh they had him turn on davy boy and um the dog fight then you know the the end of the british bulldogs and dynamite working against uh davy and um even that didn't really last too long uh dynamite quit the promotion a little while after um there's just a lot of um things going on you know obviously um neither one was 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 happy with uh with stampede you know they initially were, were drawing really big crowds and got over great you know after a few months uh it kind of peaked and uh there wasn't that box office magic there anymore you know and you know it certainly wasn't because of uh their lack of effort or you know I would say it was a mistake, though, to split them up and have Tom turn on Davey because uh, in Japan, they were still a tag team. They were still touring over there. And by this time, there was a lot more uh, communication between fans and promotions of different uh, areas and territories. So in Japan, when uh, they heard that the Bulldogs had broken up and they were, were feuding in Calgary, it didn't make sense because they were touring there later that year as a tag team. You know, it, did, it didn't have very much credibility and even some stampede fans knew when they left together even though they were feuding they were probably teaming somewhere else than they were they were they were tag teaming in japan and you know and unfortunately uh we never really got to uh, maximize that wrong power with them uh, against each other in matches uh tom quit shortly after you know it was an incident uh in uh, northwest territories uh where they're upset with my brother bruce and they and they both uh 
hit Bruce in the dressing room, and then Tom basically just quit after that. He was asked not to come to my brother Owen's uh, wedding. You know, I said I, I was kind of assistant booking at the time, and uh, Bruce was out of commission, and I asked Tom to, to make the show in Edmonton that he would book for, and he said, no, I, I want to come to the wedding uh, in Calgary for Owen, you know, and uh, he he was so uh, offended, so insulted that he was asked not to come, and you know, I also I obviously said too, there's going to be a lot of heat with you and family members because you know you just broke Bruce's jaw like two days ago, and you want to come to the wedding. I said you wouldn't be very well received there, you know. So there is uh, just so many dynamics like that going on, and you know, Davy sometimes was uh, influenced by Dynamite. If Dynamite did something, Davy did it. In that sense, he he was always sort of considered loyal to Dynamite, but but also a follower as well, you know. And that was kind of the end of their run as. Uh, as a tag team, and, and it, it was hard. We were competing against the WWF, and all of our big stars were either leaving and going to WWF or WCW. I think we'd also lost Brian Pillman and Chris Benoit, and uh, too hard to hang on to stars. You could make more money in Japan or uh, one of the bigger promotions uh, in the States. You know, So my dad closed the doors on Stampede at the end of 89. Uh, that, that basically just... Uh, left uh, all Japan tours for Dynamite and Davey. And, you know, as Steve alluded, uh, Davey, uh, you know, he, he missed the exposure that he had with WWF and he wanted to go back there and Tom didn't, you know, and then that's uh, where they had their split. When, when Davey left him, Tom considered that such a, an abandonment, such a betrayal and uh, never forgave Davey for it. And uh, Davey went back and had quite a bit of success with WWF, WCW as well. And, uh, Tom was kind of uh, left on the outside looking in. You know, they, they never, ever spoke again. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com. T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N dot com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Roman, what was your relationship with, with Davey Boy? Did, did you talk with him at all? Were you allowed to? Unfortunately, I didn't have much of a relationship with him. You know, I think that they traveled together and then when they came home to Calgary, they'd go separate to their own families and we didn't really spend a lot of time together. I wish that I had more memories with him. It's unfortunate I don't. But often they would, they also moved to Florida, back and forth to Calgary, Florida. Right. So growing up later, I made sure to keep in touch with his kids, though. We have a great relationship. And that was really important to me because I didn't really get the chance to have that with Davey growing up. So. And then how about with Dynamite? How old were you when he moved over to England? Because that was another thing, as you discussed it in, in Dark Side of the Ring, about how he, he was basically gone and, and, and left your life for so many years. How old were you when he left? I was six when he when he went back to England. And you didn't see him for so many years until you went and saw him. Well, when you I saw were... him. My brother and I flew over. I was 10. So the summer of 95, uh, my brother's four years younger than me. So and we flew there all the way to England by ourselves. My uncle Brett had flown us there because I started acting out in school. And my mom was like worried about me. She misses her dad. So Brett flew us out there. We spent the whole summer there with my dad. And we had the best summer ever. That's the most time I've ever spent with my dad in my whole life. Uh, so summer in 95. And then from there, I hadn't seen him for 15 years after that. 
And, and in this time frame, he ended up, his back injuries were so bad that he ended up in a wheelchair and kind of distanced himself from everybody. But I do remember, and actually, I think you even have the picture, Bron, when that didn't even know existed. One time we were in England, I'm going to say probably early 2000s, and Benoit got Dynamite to come to one of our shows. Um, maybe, I don't remember, where, where was he living at the time, Bronwyn? Uh, he was probably in Warrington at the time. Yeah. Close to Wigan. The show was in Sheffield. Sheffield. You, you know it. So he actually came to the show in Sheffield, and here's Dynamite Kid. And of course, he had glasses, and he's older, and he's thin, and he's in a wheelchair. But just, I remember he just held court. Everyone was just like in awe of the dynamite kid. And he actually come came and hung out for a while. And it, it was really, really cool to see him. It's the only time I ever met him, but I also think it's one of the only times he ever came to any show that we had over there. He kind of distanced himself from the wrestling business overall. Didn't he Ross? Yeah, he really did. He alluded to a lot of that in his book, but uh, I could understand in some ways how he was bitter, because he had worked so hard got so many guys over you know and then uh his career gets cut short and a lot of guys who had less ability and didn't work as hard reap the rewards you know he just seemed very uh bitter at a lot of people bitter at davy boy uh hulk hogan other guys in the wwf and uh that's unfortunate you know it was kind of an internal pain and uh didn't keep in touch with many people you know you could never reach him by phone or uh you know in a few went to visit him he might not even come to see you you know i think uh other than bronwyn and um his family i don't think he was receptive to visits from anybody he just wanted to be left alone and it's kind of sad that he uh isolated himself and uh people really just wanted to be with him and um share his company and 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 really uh show their gratitude to him for for all he had done for for them and the whole industry bronwyn why do you, why do you think he, he felt that way well, my dad had a very strong sense of pride, as we know. Even when he lost weight, he didn't want wrestlers to see him as he started slowly losing weight. And then, you know, the wheelchair, that was just another huge hurdle. He didn't want people to see him like that. So when I first reconnected with him in 2010, and I saw him for the first time in a wheelchair, it didn't bother me. It didn't shock me. I, he looked healthy still. He was, you know, he had weight on him. But he didn't see it that way. He thought of it as an embarrassment. Yeah, it was just a matter of pride. Was Is it true that there was some kind of an operation that he could have gotten to, to improve his situation? Did you guys ever hear about this? Yes. And and we don't even have to say that someone was offering to pay for it. And he was like, absolutely not. I don't want anybody's help. That's true. That's true. It's true. Yeah. Once again, just the pride. Pride. And I think he had to get on a plane. Um, I can't remember where the surgery would have been if it was the states or canada i can't remember but he didn't even want to get on a plane because you know what if i have to go to the bathroom or because he was in a wheelchair he didn't know how to get around as we start to wind down here Stephen, what do you think the british bulldogs impact is on tag team wrestling and in pro wrestling overall i think individually they've got a huge legacy that they can be proud of and together as a tag team maybe even more so you know alongside the art foundation they really did take tag team wrestling certainly in north america and subsequently worldwide to a whole new level it was historically a little bit more you know, young guys either on the way up or older guys on the way down or they've just teamed together to keep them on the card. The Bulldogs and the Art Foundation changed that to guys absolutely in their prime, doing things together, 
double team manoeuvres, high pace, high impact. And we still see that today. And I don't think we'd have got there. We might have got there eventually, but certainly not as quick as we did. You know, we soon got, soon after them, we got the Rockers, we got the Killer Bees. And, you know, you could argue that without that, we might not have got Shawn Michaels. They opened the door to the smaller man, particularly as a tag team. You know, Dynamite's, the doors that he knocked down and the glass ceilings that he shattered uh, for the people that followed cannot be underestimated. And I think it kind of took somebody like him, the the never say die attitude, which you can so intrinsically link to how things turned out for him. You know, that willingness, as we discussed earlier, to not, even if it were a small house show, or even back home in England when he was a youngster and in smoky town halls, to make sure that every fan went home happy, he put his body on the line uh, night in, night out. And I think that that attitude and that style helped shatter those glass ceilings uh, for everybody that followed, yourself included, Chris. <laughs> True. How about you, Ross? What do you think about the influence of the Bulldogs? Uh, incredible. You know, individually and, and collectively as a team, you know, I think Steve's book really captures uh, their individual lives, but but their lives together uh, as a team. And, you know, one thing I can't stress enough is how they always looked out for each other. And that's something uh, a lot of teams need to do today. You know, uh, if uh, Dynamite didn't like the direction uh, the office, the promoters uh, had in mind, Davey would follow him 100%. They really um, looked out for each other and uh, they were never divided, even though they they were pretty independent personally. They didn't spend a lot of time uh, with each other. They kept themselves a lot in the dressing room and in the ring. They they stood together, were very loyal, and uh, looked out for each other. And uh, pretty much uh, called a lot of their own shots, you know. And uh, they had that much power and influence that they could. They had way more uh, control over Vince McMahon than uh, most other wrestlers, you know. I don't know of any other wrestlers who could dictate to Vince, we'll work for you as long as we can work three to here in Japan, Dynamite demanded that stipulation and, and Vince readily uh, caved into it. He, he was that determined to bring them in as a team. You know, I, I think the book really looks at uh, their lives together, uh, their unfortunate differences, and uh, they're split up, and then their lives after uh, the Bulldogs, you know, and there's, there's a lot of triumphs and, you know, some tragedies as well. But I think the book's very, uh, very fair very well balanced and it looks at all their uh, their highs and lows but but really um talks about the impact the positive impact they had on the wrestling industry and how they paved the way for so many uh younger wrestlers uh, guys breaking in so many watch their matches and uh, study their moves and um you know dynamite's two nephews just broken in recently and you know i think they have a lot of potential but it's, it's just amazing as i was telling steve how much uh thomas looks and wrestles so much uncle i hope chris you have a chance to see them in action sometime but uh they're uh, definitely trying to carry on that legacy and uh, work hard i think to make dynamite and uh, davy and others proud of them yeah bronwyn just showed me a match of theirs and it's it, they both look like dynamite but but thomas man he works like dynamite he looks chris benoit jamie noble and now thomas billington they all work exactly like like dynamite. It's amazing how even the little movements and the snap suplex yeah. and everything. I wish I could work like that. <laughs> Bronwyn, last few things. What, what is your favorite memory of, of your dad? Do you have something that stands out when you think of Tommy Billington, your father? I have a lot, but I think maybe when we reconnected, that was 2010 when we first reconnected. And 
we shared a really special moment and that was covered on Dark Side of the Ring, if you recall. But I think that might be my favorite moment where we just sort of held each other and cried and we didn't speak a word, but I knew what it meant. So it was just something really special. And I'm so happy that I got that with him. I don't have to live with regrets. That's what I wanted. So it was beautiful. And I'm just so thankful I had that. And what's your favorite British Bulldogs match that stands out to you? Is there one? Favorite match? Um, there's so many. I think I think I just have to say anything with the Heart Foundation because just so much chemistry in the ring. You know, everyone's from Calgary and their family members. And I just love that so much. It's so special. Four brother-in-laws just killing it. And once again, reestablishing the style of the WWF at the time. Uh, my favorite is a little bit earlier than that. One of my all-time favorites is British Bulldogs versus Dean and Joe Malenko. Obviously, Dean, one of my best friends in the business. I watched that match before I even knew Dean Malenko. It's on YouTube. It's so amazing. It's from like 1989 or so in Japan. Great, great match. Uh, how about you, Stephen? What's your favorite British Bulldogs match? I was going to give a honorable mention to the Malenko's one that you just said. Um, <laughs> but collectively, there's so many from Japan watching them work with the the likes of the Funks and things like Every match is so different. That's what I think is so amazing. They can literally work with anybody. At that time, I think that they were the ones that had literally everything and so much talent in every aspect. You know, Davey would go on to be, be known as a powerhouse because he, he was so strong and powerful. But you'll see them clips of Davey he's as quick and agile as anybody in the ring. So, so yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Anything with the Art Foundation, there's brilliant cage match out there with the Art Foundation. And the Japan matches are where I think they really came into their own. The, the crowd just going crazy for them at every turn, every high-impact move that they do. And I think that that Malenko's match is sort of the one where they peak a little bit. How about you, Ross? I'm sure you got uh, some detailed stories. <laughs> I'm definitely partial to uh, their matches with the Heart Foundation, but uh, I think that the match that uh, elevated their career was when they won the WWF Tag Team Title WrestleMania II from Greg Valentine and Bruce Beefcake. Just an incredible match. That's when their dream had come true. That's when they were on top of the world, you know, and uh, they had so much exposure before that, but, uh, you know, winning the Tag Team Title was... Uh, their ultimate quest, you know, and then they, they had just a, a great reign, you know, for six or seven months until Tom's injury. And uh, so that's what stands out to me, though, is them winning the tech title uh, at WrestleMania too. Last question for you, Ross. Was, what was the relationship between Stu and Dynamite like? Was there any, any, uh, ever any arguments at all between the two or they get along pretty well? Oh, they got along great. My dad knew he was mischievous and, you know, he was... Uh, <laughs> pulling a lot of pranks, you know, and he, he was aware of some of them, you know, and he, I think might have spoken to Tom in dis just kind of discreetly about it, but those were some of the less harmful ribs, I guess, you know. Uh, there are a few <laughs> cases where people got X-laxed or uh, their drink was hellsinned or something, but not much worse and worse after that. Quite often they, they targeted people they just didn't like, you know, they felt had it coming. So, so my dad just kind of mischievous little bastard isn't he you know <laughs> i think my dad had uh a little empathy you know i don't i don't i don't really condoned uh really harmful or malicious ribs and I, I don't think what tom was doing at that point davy followed a lot of what dynamite did if, if tom said we're gonna rip this guy or go after that guy Davey would definitely do it and they would just kind of be silent about it my dad kind of you know turned a blind eye to it you know as, as long as it didn't lead to any uh violence or anything like that and nobody, nobody really uh wanted to confront dynamite either you know if, if 
if you pulled a rib on you, you just kind of took it. But I remember you used to hide Bobby Bass's teeth. Bobby would go into bats and work, and then he'd come back, and his teeth would be missing. Paul would put them somewhere and say, "Where did you put my teeth, Tommy? What? <laughs> Bobby, me in. Oh, I'm only kidding you. I just thought you maybe knew where they were. You know, so that's really to confront dynamite about a rib, you know, because uh, he called you on it. You you had to back yourself up. So I mean, he just had that level of respect from other boys, you know. So because he was such a good influence and in the worker, uh, people kind of overlooked his occasional mischief. Well, legendary characters for sure, and it's been great talking to you guys. And once again, uh, Steve wrote a great book, Dynamite and Davy, The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs by Stephen Bell, and you need to check it out because it's amazing. And thank you guys for doing this. I'm glad we were able to work it out. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. It's been great.